morning. Yeah, as Cameron said, the Bible reading um, you'll find in the leaflet and also on the screen, and you'll find it on page 950 of the Blue Church Bible. Okay, so Philippians um, uh, 1, uh, verses 3 to 11. So starting at verse 3. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart, and whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Jesus Christ. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ Jesus, to the glory and praise of God. Amen. Thanks, Debbie. Well, good morning. It is a good morning. Dare I say, this is the day that the Lord has made. Um, for those who don't know me, my name is Ellis Saxon. I'm one of the congregation here, and every now and again, I have the privilege of bringing God's word to you. And it was quite appropriate this morning with Ryan's uh, just one question that uh, it was to do with Gary Ablett and sporting teams, because <clears throat> that's my first question this morning. Who's ever been part of a sporting team? Hands up, quite a number of us. Yeah. If you've been chosen, then you want to be the best player you can be, don't you? Contribute, contributing a lot to the team's performance. You train hard leading up to that big day so that your dream becomes a reality. Now, have, have you ever thought that God has brought us into his team, that we've all, we're all on the one side? that we're all Christians, children of the living God, saved by grace. But what now? Do we say, say to ourselves, well, I'm saved. I'll just sit back and wait for heaven. That's it, mission accomplished. Or are we striving for something as disciples of Christ? And if so, what are we striving for? What are our dreams, our desires? Should we be striving for anything? Well, 127 of Paul's letter to the Philippians gives us a hint. It says this, Whatever happens, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, for those among us who are parents, we have ambitions and dreams for our children that we want to see realised one day. But what about us as a body of believers? Do we have gospel-centred ambitions, goals for ourselves? Do we have ambitions for our brothers and sisters in Christ? Well, Paul's letter to the Philippians reveals his desires for them. He looks back to the past when their foundation in Christ was laid. He examines the present and where they are now, and he reveals his dreams, hopes, for them, for the future. They've been trusting in, in Christ uh, in the past, but now God, Paul encourages them, 
encourages them to continue in grace and to, to be more, even more like Christ, ultimately to strive for perfection. And this morning as we examine Paul's letter, we'll see if Paul's desires for the Philippians are his desires for us, God's desires for us. But before we do that, please let me pray. Heavenly Father, open our hearts to your word. May we, what we hear cause us to examine our, our lives, ourselves, and see just where we are in our walk with you. Cause us to be enthused more than ever with your gospel message. Cause us to strive to be more Christ-like. Cause our love for one another to grow more and more. We thank you for the grace you've apportioned to us in Christ. May he be honoured and glorified this morning. Amen. Now the church in that Macedonian city, city of Philippi had been a great encouragement to Paul. And the Philippian believers had enjoyed a very special relationship with him. And they'd also brought him great joy. So he wrote them a personal letter, an expression of his love and affection. The first part of which we'll examine this morning. Now, what of Paul? It can be correctly said that he was one of the most important and influential people in history since the Lord Jesus Christ. His personality was a remarkable combination of a brilliant mind, an indomitable will, and a tender heart. Of Jewish ancestry, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as he would later describe himself, describe himself later in 3.5. He had been a Pharisee, one of the religious elite, educated under Gamaliel, one of the leading rabbis at the time. And he was also by birth a Roman citizen. And he had been exposed to Greek culture in his home city of Tarsus. Now such a background rendered him uniquely qualified to communicate the gospel throughout the cultures of the Roman Empire. And it was largely through his efforts that Christianity was transformed from a small Palestinian sect to a religion with believers throughout that empire. Lest anyone doubt his authority, Paul describes himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ, not just a, just a messenger, but a representative of the one who sent him. And what he writes in his letters is not merely his opinion, but God's authoritative word. In Galatians, if you're taking notes, chapter 1, verses 11 to 12, he asserts he didn't become an apostle through his own efforts, neither was he nominated for the position by any human organisation. Paul was an apostle by the will of God, God having chosen him long before, and that sovereign choice was brought into realisation on the road to Damascus, where he encountered Jesus Christ in a vision. It climaxed in him being set apart for missionary service by the Holy Spirit. Now, Paul and his companions had founded the church at Philippi on his second missionary journey about 10 years earlier. And the Philippians had been more than Paul's friends and supporters ever since. They'd shared in Christ, 
so were part of his family, brothers and sisters in Christ. They'd shared in fellowship with Paul, that is, participated in the gospel, shared in his mission to take the good news to others. And when they heard that he was in Rome as a prisoner, they'd collected money and sent it to him with Epaphroditus. It testifies to their shared vision of the importance and priority of the gospel, a main theme in today's sermon. Paul writes to all of them, no one is left out. It shows that they're a family of Christ, one body of believers. He writes not only to thank them for their gift, but to encourage them in their faith. He writes with joy. In fact, most commentators refer to this letter to the Philippians as Paul's joy letter, as that theme permeates throughout. In fact, joy is mentioned at least four times as many times as any other of his 13 letters. And what's the source of that joy? What's the cause of that joy? Well, we read in verse 5, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. The Philippians hadn't rested in grace since that first day, hadn't just shared in the blessings, hadn't sat on their hands, they'd rolled up their sleeves and shared the gospel with others. They'd continued their witness in Philippi, they'd persevered in their prayers for Paul, supported his ministry. More than enough reason for Paul to be thanking God, firstly for his work in them, secondly for their confidence in God, and thirdly for their affection for one another. All fruit of the gospel on display, evidence that their faith was real. It had transformed their lives. And these are the reasons he thanks God. And how often? Every time I remember you, he says in verse 3. He was there with them at the beginning when God had opened their hearts, when they received new birth, just as we saw those footballers receive new birth, speak of receiving new birth this morning. When they were made alive in Christ, all of which began when they welcomed the gospel message, believed the gospel message. Paul had seen lives changed by the transforming power of God. He'd seen, seen God's grace and mercy at work. And nowhere more classic than in Acts 16.25 in the saving of the Philippian jailer and his household, which I invite you to read when you get a chance. He had seen and heard of the Philippians' faith and participation in the gospel since the beginning. We see Paul's love for them based on the fellowship they have in Christ, the relationship they have with God and so with each other, their sharing in the gospel. All those things bind them together. And he's right to feel the way he does about them. It's an appropriate response to what God has done in their lives. The gospel shaped every aspect of their lives. God's faithfulness is seen in their faithfulness. And yet, Paul still prays for them, even though they appear to have everything in hand. He doesn't want them to take their salvation for granted. He has gospel-centred desires for them. So he turns to God in prayer. 
He exudes confidence in God because he knows him. And such confidence causes him to say in verse 6, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. What reassuring, encouraging words for the Philippians. What wonderful words of assurance for us to hear that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. Praise God. God is faithful, as Paul says many times. When he begins his work in his children, he will complete it. And Paul would remind them of this later in 2.13, when he says, For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. God works in us to his praise and glory. Paul had taught the saints in Philippi, those who belonged to God, God's holy people, that God had begun to remake them when they began to believe or when they began to be in Christ and that in the day of Christ Jesus, that day when Christ comes again or when we meet him when we die, he would complete his good work, bringing them to perfection. And it was with the pastor's encouragement, <clears throat> was pastor's encouragement that Paul reassures them that they'll be preserved to the end, never to fall away from God's grace. And the same applies to we who believe. Hallelujah. But what are the present? They were a work in progress, as we've heard, as we are a work in progress. God is working for us and in us, just as he did the Philippians. God had already done the work for them in the death of Jesus upon the cross and his victorious resurrection. And he had graciously applied that work of Christ in them, in us by the Holy Spirit, that regenerating work, regenerating power of the Holy Spirit, making us new creations in Christ. And we see that from beginning to end, salvation is entirely a divine work of grace. And if we have any doubts as to where we stand, we can ask ourselves, am I a Christian believer? And if the answer is yes, then it is because God took the initiative, opened our minds to his word, and having done that, we can rest assured God will bring his good work in us to completion at that day of Christ Jesus. We can be sure of heaven as though we've been there 10,000 years. God finishes what he starts. So as I spoke of earlier, can I, can we sit back and take things easy? Surely I can. Hmm. But what about that team game? What if I never practice? Surely I want to. Surely I need to if I want to bring, if I want to bring honour and glory to the captain. It begs the question, is it all up to God? 
It's an odd question to ask after what we've heard from Paul. But listen to what he says in 3.12, speaking of the resurrection of the dead. Not that I've already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. And in 2.12 he says this, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. These statements seem contradictory to that of God bringing his work to us, in us to completion. They're both true, however. Paul's view, Paul's view is that it's 100% down to God and 100% down to us. God's action makes us zealous for him, should make us zealous for him. We strive because he has done the work for us. We strive because of the love and mercy he's shown us in Jesus Christ. And we see two current relationships at work in the life of the Philippians. That vertical relationship between them and God, with him carrying on his transforming work in them, and that horizontal relationship they have with Paul and each other. A relationship in which the gospel dominates, a relationship with a common faith in the gospel, one that shares confidence in God, a relationship that brings joy to Paul and that produces affection for one another. Love, joy, sharing, again, all fruits of the spirit. Fellowship is not just having a coffee with one another after church. It's sharing in the gospel, partnering in the, in the gospel. It's a common bond. It's our common bond. Now, reading Paul's letter, hearing of his thanks to God, his constant prayers for the Philippians, his confidence in God, his exuberant joy, his encouragement, one would believe that he was in a pretty good place at the moment, at that moment, that everything was going smoothly for him. He even sounds on a bit of a high. It's not the type of letter you'd expect from someone who's in prison in Rome facing possibly a death sentence. Despite that, however, it's not with a self-absorbed, morbid spirit that Paul prays, prays with. On the contrary, Paul's circumstances don't affect his joyful and prayerful regard for the Philippian believers. His prayer is heartfelt and positive. He's possessed with triumphant joy. He has a quiet inner happiness that is not dependent on this life's circumstances. A deep gladness in his heart because of the knowledge that he has that all is well in the Lord. And these things are all evidence of grace in his life. All evidence of what God has done, is doing and will do in his life. Paul is confident of the past, the present and the future. He sets the example for the Philippians to follow in their thanksgiving and prayer for one another. He sets the example for us to follow. He wants us to be imitators of him. As we listen to his words, his instructions from 3.17, join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have us for a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do.
Although Paul was imprisoned, his loving heart towards them is seen in his unwavering gospel focus. He maintains a riveting eye on the gospel, upon the saving message of Jesus Christ. He hasn't lost sight of preaching the gospel, uh, of the message of salvation to others. He sees his imprisonment as a new opportunity to advance the good news of Christ. What must tie us together as Christians is this passion for the gospel, this fellowship in the gospel. Nothing else is strong enough to bind together, to hold together such an extraordinary diversity of people that we've got here today that constitute, also constitute God's church worldwide. What holds us together is the gospel, the good news, that in Jesus Christ, God himself reconciled us to himself. Which begs the question, so shouldn't we be like Paul, like the Philippians, and take the message of the gospel to the world? Want to take the message of the gospel to the world? We're all members of the body of Christ. Shouldn't we all be on the same evangelical enterprise, have the same focus, despite our diversity, despite having different gifts and different opportunities? The Philippians weren't passive partners who sent, just sent money and help to Paul. They were a missionary outpost in the city of Philippi. And Paul encouraged them in 2.15 to be blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you'll shine like them among stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. Great encouragement for them, great encouragement for us. We may never have thought of ourselves as a missionary outpost here at Trinity Hills, but that's exactly what we are. We've both a, both the responsibility and the privilege of bringing the good news of the gospel, not just to this area, but perhaps the network, to around Adelaide, to South Australia, perhaps through our CMS missionaries to the rest of the world. The Philippians had been doing this from that first day until now. They hadn't tired, hadn't lost their zeal to tell others about Christ. They'd remained faithful in the ways of the Lord and hence they were the source of Paul's joy. They were sharing in God's grace with him. 1.8 reads, God can testify how, long, how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus, says Paul. So there's no doubting his love for them, but circumstances preventing going to them. However, as we've seen, those circumstances don't prevent him from using them uh, as he finds himself in prison, defending or confirming the gospel, as it says in verse 7, as an opportunity to preach the gospel. And circumstances shouldn't prevent us from doing the same. What of the future? Well, if we read verses 9 to 10, and this is my prayer that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may, may be able to discern what is best 
and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Paul's prayer is probably not on top of our prayer list. They, I dare dare say, may appear mundane, secondary to what Paul prays for. Paul's priorities are probably not our priorities. I know they weren't mine when I came to write this sermon. They weren't number one anyway. Do we pray for our children's future, their career, their relationships? All great things to pray for, mind you. But do we pray for them before we pray that they might grow in Christ? Do our prayers reflect the priorities of the gospel? Paul's prayers do. They're front and centre. And in this particular letter, we see that there are three main points that Paul prays for. Firstly, that their love may abound more and more. While that love is evidence of God's work in them, as I mentioned earlier, it's not all up to God. It's a challenge for them to love more and more. It's a challenge for us to love more and more because they, we need to exercise our wills to engage in further acts of love. And why is that? Because it's agape love that Paul's talking about. Will-based, unconditional love. Not an expression of uh, family loyalty or mateship or sexual attraction. In that time, unconditional love was virtually unknown. Society was layered, the rich and powerful at the top and the slaves at the bottom. And if you did a favour for anyone in the section below you, you'd expect something in return. And Paul's partnership with the Philippians was countercultural to the normal way of life. That unconditional love displayed in their relationship, as I said, was virtually unknown until the advent of Jesus Christ and the spread of the gospel. And that love or that grace was perfectly expressed in the in the Son of God who taught and exemplified unconditional love, a love that expects nothing in return. It's the sole basis of God's relationship with us and the sole basis of our relationship with one another. And Paul is praying that this love they have for one another will grow more and more. From a Christian point of view, growing to love God must be reflected in our love for other believers. In fact, the more we love God, the more we will have an increased capacity to love others. And Jesus affirmed this cause and effect relationship to love God with one's entire entire being is the key to keeping the second commandment, to love your neighbour as yourself. So no no matter how wonderful the Philippians had been to Paul, however faithful in their love for him, Paul still prays that their love would abound more and more. Now that Christian love that Paul prays for is regulated by knowledge of the gospel and comprehensive moral insight. However, these constraints don't stifle love. They ensure its purity and value. 
And the priority Paul places on loving other believers should become our priority, should our, occupy our prayers for them and ourselves for that matter, that they would grow deeper, we would grow deep in our love for God and others as we press on in our faith. Secondly, Paul prays that the love he has in mind is the love that becomes more knowledgeable with a depth of insight as we read in verse 9. Not just any knowledge, but knowledge of God. A mature grasp of the meaning of the gospel. And we'll receive that as the Holy Spirit takes God's word, that living and active word, and applies it to our hearts. That knowledge of God and his word serves as an incentive for Christian love. Now the insight Paul knows that we need, the insight Paul knows that we need to know how to love people and that our love for them must grow before we have spiritual insight to know what their real needs are, to understand their truest wants. The insight Paul prays for is an insight into God's words and ways and he continues on to pray that the Philippians would live in the light of those. Why else does Paul pray for that the Philippians may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight? The answer is in verse 10. So that you may be able to discern what is best. From Paul's prayer, we understand what is best must be delicate and subtle, not easily discerned difficult to spot unless their love is abounding in knowledge and depth of insight. Paul doesn't want the Philippian believers to be satisfied with mediocrity. He wants them to strive for what is best. And Paul's letter spells the death of uh, entrenched mediocrity, of smug satisfaction, of contentment with our own excuses. He longs for them to be more like Christ, for their hearts and minds to become profoundly Christian, being able to discern what is best in the knowledge of God, what is best in their relationship with others, and what is best in joyful obedience. Ultimately, what he wants from them is perfection, seen in the third point where Paul continues to say in verse 10 and 11, they need to discern what is best so that they may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. Pure. It means an authentic life of integrity. It denotes a love that is real. Paul is praying that there will be no character flaws or false love in the Philippians. Nothing must be hidden by the fake cover-up of a religious facade. They're not to be one person on Sunday and another on Monday. They must be blameless, not falling into any moral failure that causes themselves or others to stumble. Paul's prayers imply active and positive behaviour until believers, verse 11, are filled with the fruit of righteousness. And why? 
not to enhance their reputations of holiness and excellence, but, again in verse 11, to the praise and glory of God. May Paul's prayers for the Philippians be prayers for us. May we go from this place today striving to love one another more and more, striving to be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, striving for perfection in Christ to the glory and praise of God. And on that note, I'll leave you with the words of the Puritan Thomas Brooks who said this, The aim of the obedient soul in prayer and praises, in talking and walking, in giving and receiving, in living and doing, is divine glory. Amen. Just let me finish in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for speaking to us this morning. May we take everything that you've said on board. May we not just rely on your amazing grace. May we strive to grow in our faith, our Christian walk. May we not be satisfied with mediocrity. May we be shining lights for Christ in this dark and corrupt world. May we grow to be more like Christ. And we, Father, we pray that uh, all we do in our lives will bring glory and praise to you and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.